Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke, and this is Eyes Only. In a closed-off courtroom, the killer of John Lennon issues his plea. Against his own lawyer's counsel, Mark David Chapman pleads guilty. The man who claims that Satan told him to kill John Lennon now tells the courtroom that it is God's will that he confesses. At his sentencing, Chapman receives 20 to life. His last words to the courtroom come from a worn copy of J.D. Salinger's novel, The Catcher in the Rye. He reads from it, those famous lines that give the book its title. I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody. If they start to go over the cliff, I mean if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I'd just be the catcher in the rye and all. With this quote being Chapman's last words in his court case, the courtroom drama comes to an end, leaving so many people wondering what the cold-blooded murder of a beloved icon could have possibly had to do with being a catcher in the rye. Alone in his room, John Hinckley sips on peach brandy. It's almost midnight. As the minutes go by and the alcohol in his system increases, his emotions take control. It is December 31st, 1980. In a few minutes, a new year will begin. A new trip around the sun, yet it will be different this time. A world without John Lennon. It has been 23 days since the gifted artist was brutally murdered outside his home. John Hinckley Jr. does not know how to handle the assassination of his idol. He wants to kill himself, to travel to the steps of the Dakota, to the scene of the crime, and commit suicide on the very spot where Lennon's blood was spilled. Picking up a tape recorder, his thoughts are captured that night. The audio from these recordings has never been released publicly, yet the transcripts reveal the toll that Lennon's death has placed on an already dangerous, already unhinged individual. I just want to say goodbye to the old year, which was nothing, total misery, total death. John Lennon is dead. The world is over. Forget it. Anything that I might do in 1981 would be solely for Jodie Foster's sake. Just tell the world in some way that I worship and idolize her. One of my idols was murdered, and now Jodie's the only one left. The recordings take a dark turn as a drunk Hinckley professes his deranged love for Jodie. He makes a chilling statement right before the recordings stop. Sometimes, I think I'd rather just see her not, not on Earth, than with being with other guys. But I have to go with her. I wouldn't want to stay here on Earth without her on Earth. 
It'd have to be some kind of final pact between Jody and me. I think about that a lot. It is time for me to go to bed. It's after midnight. It's the new year, 1981. Bye. Hallelujah. That night, Hinkley plays the guitar and sings one of John Lennon's famous songs, Oh Yoko, replacing Jodie Foster's name in place of Yoko Ono's. That night, in his mind, he makes a death pact with a woman who barely knows his name. The bus fare should have cost $194, yet Hinkley is low on money. At the Stapleton International Airport, he boards a Western Airlines flight. It's late morning when he leaves Colorado en route to Salt Lake City, Utah. At around 1 p.m., he is again rushing to catch another flight, a connecting flight to Los Angeles International Airport. He had passed up a direct flight. Choosing the connection qualifies him for a Western Airlines discount a discount on a cross-country bus trip. On March 26, 1981, Hinkley pays $117.80 for a bus fare. A coach ride that will take him through Las Vegas, through Cheney, Wyoming, and through Chicago. It takes four days to reach Washington, D.C. To pass the time as the mile markers tick by, Hinkley turns the pages of the now infamous book, The Catcher in the Rye. Mark David Chapman's wish to inspire the reading of the novel seems to have worked on the young man. In a short while, Hinkley will make his own statement about the controversial novel to law enforcement. He will state that if you want to know why I did it, read The Catcher in the Rye. Investigators would find the novel inside his hotel room. A startling discovery if you understand the recent events surrounding it. An investigation into its connection to Reagan's shooting would be conducted. It has become popular to consider the book as a motivation for Hinckley's actions. Yet, it is not as clear-cut as you would think from a simple Google search or from reading certain opinions that have been publicated. The Catcher in the Rye is just a footnote in Hinckley's life, an interest sparked by the death of Lennon. The actions of Mark David Chapman have more of a connection to Hinckley's motive than the pages of Salinger's book. Law enforcement failed to find a connection to the book as a motive for Hinckley's actions. The movie Taxi Driver is the real source of his obsession. Jody Foster is what is on his mind. He is heading to Washington, D.C., but his real destination is New Haven, Connecticut. John Hinckley Jr. has decided to end Jody Foster's life. He is on his way to make true the twisted death pact that he has made up in his mind. Jerry Parr sits transfixed, his eyes focused on the big screen. The camera cuts to a scene of an office door. The sign on the door reads Secret Service Division. They have arrived at the movie theater late, 
but just in time for the feature film. If they had gotten there earlier, they would have probably seen the newsreels. Most likely, it would have started with Time Magazine's famous The March of Time broadcast series, a classic 1930s newsreel. It is possible that Jerry might have seen a prominent European figure making headlines, images of 1939 Germany and its leader Adolf Hitler flashing across the screen. A world on the brink of disaster. Yet for nine-year-old Jerry Parr, in this moment, all that couldn't be farther away. Forty years later, Jerry would still cherish these trips to the Tower Theater with his father. On the screen, that door opens, and the clean-cut, dashingly handsome Secret Service agent, Brass Bancroft, walks through it. He receives his assignment, a dangerous stakeout at the southern border, an undercover mission to bust a criminal enterprise of counterfeiters. True to form, Brass accepts the mission as duty calls him to serve his country. He flashes an all-American smile at the camera. Jerry is engrossed in the narrative as he watches an all-American hero save the day. He grips his father's arm as the movie goes from cliffhanger to plot twist. At any moment, it seems like Brass is done for. Until he slips the ropes, tying him to a chair and rescues the girl, saving the day. The music plays, the credits roll, and the reel threads through the tail end of the projector. The lights come on and the screen goes white. But the impression made that night would never leave Jerry. On their way home from the movie theater, Jerry nearly falls asleep on his father's shoulders. The warm Miami night air is welcoming and pleasant as they walk. Jerry doesn't quite know it yet, but he's going to become one of those heroes. The cool pre-dawn air feels refreshing as Jerry Parr takes his morning jog, part of his pre-work routine, a process that keeps him sharp and alert for the day to come. After over two decades as a Secret Service agent, he has worked his way into one of the most important positions in the agency. He is in charge of the President's protective detail. The drive into work is as normal as any that day. Washington, D.C.'s iconic cherry blossom trees still have not bloomed. It is March 30th, 1981, and spring is hinting at its arrival. Jerry notices the meadow flowers have managed to open up. The sky is gray and overcast. It is about to rain. That day, Jerry will make the decision to not require his agents to wear bulletproof vests. By mid-afternoon, it will be hot and muggy. The vests are miserable in the humidity. The assignment that day is the Hilton Hotel, where President Reagan will be speaking. It is a routine visit to a familiar place, over a hundred successful visits in the past decade. There are no credible threat indications on the President's life that day. 
Hinkley sits in a Washington, D.C. McDonald's. As he eats breakfast, he reads the Washington Star newspaper, and an article stands out to him. A moment that changes his course. He never continues on to New Haven. His plans to kill Jody are never lived out. Hinkley would never get near Jody Foster again. Within a few hours, he will be chained to a metal table inside the Metro DC Police Headquarters. It is March 30th, 1981, and he has just read that President Ronald Reagan will be making a public appearance at the Hilton Hotel that day. Timothy McCarthy and Joe Trainer flip a coin. A coin toss that will change McCarthy's life. It might seem like bad luck. 50-50 odds that will put him in the direct line of fire. The bullet that he is on a trajectory to collide with will malfunction that day. It's lead-azide explosive charge failing to detonate as it enters his chest. Timothy McCarthy will live through the day. On the other end of the coin toss is his friend Joe Trainer and the man who would have been in his place that day. Joe Trainer is an inch and a half shorter than McCarthy. The shot McCarthy takes that day will miss his heart, yet if Joe Trainer had been in his place, it most likely would have been a direct hit. McCarthy accepts the loss of the coin toss and joins the president's motorcade. His largest complaint about his bad luck is the fact that it's raining. As Jerry rides in the front seat of the president's limousine, they wind their way through D.C. streets safely protected behind level 4 armor. The six and a half ton vehicle is codenamed Stagecoach, and every inch of it is bulletproof. A traveling fortress. They reach the Hilton. Across the street, Inside the Universal North building, Jerry's wife, Carolyn Parr, is at work. Her fourth floor window faces out over the street. Her IRS office is on her husband's route that day. She hopes to catch a glimpse of the former movie star who had just won a landslide political victory. Inside room 312 of the Park Central Hotel, Hinkley sits down to write one last letter to Jody, one he believes will be his last on earth. Dear Jody, there is a definite possibility I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. Jody, I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. In one pocket of his jacket, John Hinckley Jr. places his 22 revolver. In the other pocket, he puts a John Lennon button. He shuts the door to his hotel room behind him and gets into a taxi cab. That door will soon be sealed with red wax. Even the keyhole will be covered. A sign placed on it proclaiming it contains important evidence. Jerry scans the crowd. 
His ears are focused, yet he is not hearing Reagan's speech. His face is cold, his eyes piercing. This is by design, a look that is meant to show force to strike fear. The piercing glare of a Secret Service agent has in the past killed the nerve of a gunman ready to strike. Jerry reads the people's faces. He stands on the stage. In front of him, Reagan addresses the audience. Jerry and his agents look for the signs of a violent individual. The trembling hands, excessive sweat, darting eyes. Clothing that doesn't fit in, a bulge in an overcoat, even a purse clutched a little too tightly. Reagan finishes speaking, a speech that was not his best. The crowd stands to applaud, mostly out of respect. The pro-union crowd is not made up of Reagan's biggest supporters, yet the president felt an obligation to show his support to them that day. 19-year-old Adrian Say waits in a crowd of around 30 people. It's rainy and gray. He's standing near an 8-foot-high curved stone wall. All around him are reporters and photographers, all waiting for the president to emerge. A man in the crowd looks at him and makes a comment that makes Adrian feel uncomfortable. Hinkley is standing there, waiting as well. He says to him, It's rainy, but it's too nice to be out here. Adrian cannot help but feel off-put by the comment. It doesn't make any sense to him. He politely says, I'll see you, as he backs away from the strange man. As he leaves, he hears Hinkley say, You won't see me anymore. Carolyn Parr looks at the time. She has gotten lost in her work. She had forgotten all about seeing the president. Looking out her window, she sees that the motorcade is still parked out front. A small crowd has gathered around the hotel doors. She can see the usual ensemble of media outlets and bystanders, all waiting to get a shot of the president. Grabbing her purse, she rushes downstairs and out onto the sidewalk, arriving just in time to see Ronald Reagan emerge from the hotel doors, her husband walking directly at his side. The VIP elevator doors open. Jerry Parr walks next to the president, positioned directly at his right side. At the president's left, Secret Service agent Ray Shattuck carries a steel plate, a shield designed to block gunfire, wrapped in leather to cloak its ominous appearance. Surrounding them are four agents. Timothy McCarthy takes the lead in what is called a diamond formation. Two other agents take up the left and right positions, Behind Reagan, Agent Bob Wanko follows, completing the formation. He carries a large suitcase. Concealed inside of it rests an Uzi submachine gun. They step through the Hilton Hotel doors and out onto the sidewalk. Jerry gauges the distance. The space between when his escape route changes from the hotel doors to the motorcade. Each step on the walk forward is calculated. Jerry reaches the threshold where the motorcade becomes the safest place. 
Tim McCarthy opens the door to the vehicle. A woman from the rope line calls out to Reagan. The president pauses for a split second, turning his head towards the woman. A sharp staccato shot rings in Jerry's ears. He grabs Reagan by the back of his belt and his pants and thrusts him forward. The shot Jerry hears strikes Press Secretary James Brady in the head. The second shot hits Officer Thomas Delaney in the neck. Across the street, a window of the Universal Office building is hit by the third shot. Timothy McCarthy turns toward Hinckley as the deranged gunman fires his fourth shot into his chest. Ray Shattuck throws the president and Jerry towards the open door of the motorcade. The fifth shot slams into the bulletproof window of the president's limousine. A cameraman captures the moment, an image shot across the roof of the car as Jerry pushes Reagan into the vehicle. As they fly through the doorway of the vehicle, the sixth shot ricochets off the side of it, flattening out like a dime and passing through the fraction of an inch gap between the frame and the open door and striking the president. Jerry lands hard, pushing Reagan's body into the transmission riser and slamming his head into the seat. Shattuck shoves their feet and legs into the vehicle and slams the door shut. Within three seconds, they have covered the six feet to the vehicle and are peeling out away from the scene. Jerry looks at the window and sees the clear mark of a bullet strike. He looks out the back of the car's window as they speed away. He starts to absorb the moment as he sees three men laying on the ground behind him. Agent Bob Wanko drops the suitcase away from the Uzi and covers their escape. He screams at a woman running towards the chaotic scene to get back. Carolyn Parr desperately tries to identify the men laying on the ground. Her husband was alive and standing moments ago. Her excitement and anticipation has in less than two seconds turned to dread. She sees press secretary James Brady lift his bloody head off the ground. Her heart sinks, but she knows it is not her husband. She hears a woman screaming. The disconnect fades, and she realizes she is the one screaming. She clasps her hand over her mouth, trying to stifle herself. The agent with the Uzi is watching her. In desperation, she turns to him. He tells her, Jerry is in the car with the man. Jerry has spent most of his life thinking about what it means to be a Secret Service agent. You spend your career waiting to hear that horrible sound. From the moment in the movie theater, as a child, his whole life has been leading up to this moment. The most significant moment of his career. As the president's limousine races towards the crown, the code word for the White House, Jerry runs his hands through Reagan's hair and along the insides of his jacket, searching for signs of a bullet wound. The man in front of him has come a long way from his Hollywood career. He is playing a different role now, 
one that clearly comes with occupational hazards. Whether Reagan at the time understood the significance his life has had on Jerry Parr is unclear. Jerry is looking with concern at his childhood hero. The 70-year-old is pale and grimaced. He tells Jerry that he thinks his rib is broken. Reagan takes a napkin from his pocket and puts it to his lips. It turns red with blood. It is in this moment, about 20 seconds into the run to the White House, that Jerry makes the quick kind of decision that comes from decades of experience. The hard call that younger Secret Service agents might not make out of fear. Jerry makes the call to go to George Washington Hospital. The White House's emergency room is one of the most secure operating tables on Earth. Yet in his gut, Jerry knows they need to go to George Washington. It is a decision that Reagan's doctors say saved his life. There's a reason Jerry was in that car, why he held so close to the president on his detail. He has served presidents from JFK to Jimmy Carter. As an agent, he has directed security for 56 visiting heads of state, including kings, queens, and emperors. A remarkable service record that all began with a movie. As a young actor, Reagan played the lead role in the 1939 film Code of the Secret Service. His character is the daring agent named Brass Bancroft. The very movie that Jerry Parr watched with his father in that movie theater. The movie Jerry attributes to why he joined the Secret Service. That night, Vice President George H. Bush addresses the nation. The American government is functioning fully and effectively. We've had full and complete communications throughout the day, and the officers of the federal government have been fulfilling their obligations with skill and with care. Vice President Bush assures the nation that the seat of power is secure. John Hinckley Jr. is transferred into FBI custody that same day. That night, Secret Service agent Stephen Colo asks the right question. The mystery of John Hinckley begins to unravel with the raid of his hotel room at the Park Central Hotel. Reagan's shooter may be in custody, yet the threat is not over. Jodie Foster will soon receive a letter. A man with a loaded gun has been following her. Edward Michael Richardson is a stalker. A stalker who is making plans for murder. He writes the young actress the haunting words, Ronald Reagan must die. John Warnock Hinckley has told me so in a prophetic dream. Sadly though, your death is also required. You will suffer the same fate as Reagan and others in his fascist regime. You cannot escape. 
We are a wave of assassins throughout the world. The story continues on my next episode. Thanks for listening.